This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. In this episode, we'll follow Steve on his political journey from his first campaign to his decision to leave the Republican Party. We'll talk about George W. Bush, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Dick Cheney, John McCain, and who's really responsible for giving us Sarah Palin. Steve, you made a little bit of news recently when you announced that you were no longer part of the Republican Party. You know, Lisa, I'm surprised anyone cared that much. But uh, yeah, no, I'm out. I left. Yeah, it's kind of surprising to me that the Republican Party is still even called the Republican Party and not just called, you know, the Trump Party. So I thought it would be fun to interview you so people could hear out your journey and why you made that decision. I'll do it as long as I get to do that to you in one of these future episodes. (laughs) Okay, okay. Good luck. So, Steve, people know you from the McCain campaign, working for President Bush. Now you're an MSNBC contributor and even the HBO movie Game Change. Let's go back further than that, though. We've spent time around politicians, and we both know that any politician who's any good is always going to ask you first thing, so where are you from? Yeah, and then the bad ones start talking about where they're from. Um, but I'm from I'm from New Jersey. I grew up in North Plainfield, New Jersey, which is about 25 miles outside of New York City in a bedroom community. Mom was a school teacher. Dad worked for the phone company. They were Ronald Reagan Democrats. They they had grown up in Bayonne, New Jersey, Jersey City, New Jersey. I'm sure you know they had never met a Republican until they until they voted for Ronald Reagan in 1980. But I think for my father, he's probably the last Democrat he voted for was Jimmy Carter in the 76 election. But they they weren't per- particularly political. So how did you become interested in politics? When I was in second or third grade, you had one of these assignments about what do you want to be when you grow up? And whatever incomprehensible scribble, you know, gets turned into the teacher said, well, so you want to be the president? And I'm supposedly to have said that, no, I want to run his campaign. And I had enormous interest for it. And, you know, my first campaign, we had a really close family friend who was running for city council. Uh, I still have the campaign button on my desk. It was 1978. And Bill Bradley, of course, from the New York Knicks was running for the U.S. Senate. And I was out there handing out Bill Bradley stickers and campaigning for the Democratic ticket for uh, the council in North Plainfield, New Jersey. And how did it turn into a profession? My first job out of out of college was as the travel aide, the driver, handyman, you know, fixer. Carried the bag for the candidate for governor in Delaware as I was as I was getting out of college. And um, you know, my my parents like it took some years to convince them that this was actually a career or a job. But um, when I when I started out of college, I was being paid the princely sum I think of six hundred dollars a month, which. Which How did was, you live on which that? Was <laughs> with, with, with difficulty. <laughs> with difficulty. And, um, you know, and then, and then spent years, you know, like so many people in politics, you know, all over, the, all over the country as an itinerant campaign worker. I had a black Mitsubishi Eclipse 
uh, that held all my worldly possessions. I had one pot, a big spoon, uh, clothes, and a and a stereo, which got stolen at a rest stop somewhere along the way. I, you know, I lived in you know places like the Daniel Boone Motor Inn in Pikeville, Kentucky, between two hookers who were working the roads where the coal truck drivers came in to Sylacauga, Alabama, and and eventually wheeled my way out to. Uh, California, where my you know first really big race, I would say, would be in '98, was a U.S. Senate race out there, where um, I became friends. Um, one of the more important relationships of my life, you know, as a as a friend, is uh, where I met Nicole Wallace. When did you decide that you were a Republican? You know, I was a child of the '80s, um, and you look back just on the films of that era, right? You know, it was you were proud to be an American. Uh, there was a lot of patriotism. The things were turning around. You had, and I remember, you know, as a, as a nine-year-old, you know, the, the yellow ribbons for the Iranian hostages and, you know, the sense of impotence and powerlessness of the, of the country. And, you know, like, like young people, and I, you know, people look back, Ronald Reagan was the oldest president at that time ever elected, but he had the most intense support from young people of any president who had been elected uh, until Barack Obama came along. Um, but but he captured the imagination um, of of kids in this country. When when I went to college uh, at the end of Ronald Reagan's presidency, you know, first election I voted in was for President George Herbert Walker Bush, and there's a freshman at the University of Delaware. You know, if you were to say I'm voting for Michael Dukakis. Right. People would have looked at you like you had a horn coming out of the middle of your your, your head. I mean, everybody liked Ronald Reagan, you know, certainly, you know, that, you know, that I was around and his optimism and, and what he stood for and robustness of kind of the arguments for national security about the greatness of the country. It was, it was compelling. I've spoken of a shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. You know, what, what's inscribed on his grave is that in my heart, I know that man is good, that in the end, what is right eventually triumphs and there's worth and purpose to every human life. It's just the, the polar opposite of, of Trumpism. And to see the degeneracy of, in the party, you know, from that to where we are now uh, at every level, it's just, I, you know, I think it's tragic, but it's but, – but I – you know, I certainly he inspired me in 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 politics. So that was motivating a young Steve Schmidt circa 1998 in California who meets a young Nicole Wallace and they decide that they are going to work for Republican candidates. Yeah, she was the communications director on a governor's race that lost by 20 points. And I was the communications director on the Senate race that lost by 10 points. Uh, for an Asian American candidate, a guy named Matt Fong, and um, it was the first election in California that took place after this terrible race baiting campaign 
and it was run by Governor Pete Wilson that showed these grainy images of Mexicans running across the border with these dark intonations of they keep coming and coming and coming. And it led to this awakening of the Hispanic vote, which repudiated the Republican Party. And now you jump forward, um, you know, two decades, the Republican Party is essentially in California a third party. It's smaller than independents or decline to state registrations. And we were there to witness that together. And, you know, I think in our careers, you know, we've watched the party become hostile to people of color, to immigrants in a way that we were always on the side of the Republican Party that wanted to court those communities. I mean, George W. Bush, who we later both worked for, got 43 percent of the Hispanic vote. Think of how remarkable that is in the context of what's going on in the in the party today. It wasn't that long ago. Steve, when did you start working for President Bush? I started working for President Bush on the 2004 campaign and uh, worked closely with my great friend and your great friend, Nicole Wallace, and um, you know, helped run the communications operation of that against John Kerry. And then after President Bush won re-election, you moved to the White House. I was deputy assistant to the president, counselor to the vice president. But my, my relationship with, with the vice president has a little something to do with uh, New Jersey in that um, – you know, if people remember uh, back in the day, Pat Leahy, the senator from Vermont, was on the floor of the Senate and he had been castigating Dick Cheney very unfairly um, about his exit package from from Halliburton, really questioning his integrity. And Cheney had known him for decades and uh, Cheney had watched the whole thing on the TV, went to the floor of the Senate. And Pat Leahy came up, put his arm around him and said, hey, Dick, how you doing? And Cheney said, delay, he go fuck yourself. And this caused the Bush campaign to go into a complete and total meltdown. And that next morning, um, I was uh, at the senior staff meeting and really everybody on the campaign uh, was making the point that Cheney should apologize. And and I was the dissenter. And, and I said, well, I don't think you should apologize. I think Leahy deserved it. I think an apology is totally off brand for, for Dick Cheney. And, and I said, lastly, I said, we can sit around here debating this all day long. The, the bottom line is none of us can make him apologize and he's not going to apologize. So we should get on to business. And about an hour later, I got a I got a call and I said, the vice president wants to talk to you from Air Force Two. And I got on the phone. I said, uh, hello, Mr. Vice President. And he said, well, I understand you're the only person in the campaign who thinks I shouldn't apologize. And, and I said, that's right, sir. And uh, and he goes, well, why? And I, I went through the reasons. And then I added at the end, I said, besides, I said, I'm from North Jersey. I said, that's a term of affection where I come from. And he laughed. And about an hour later, I got a call from Rove saying, you're in charge of anything to do with the vice president now for the rest of the campaign also. No apologies. Hey, no, maybe it was the no, start no, of a no, <laughs> no apologies movement in politics. No, I maintain to this day he deserved it. Politically, the vice president might have been even the most controversial member of the Bush administration. And what's always stood out to me is how people who know the vice president well speak about him in their private interactions and how they know him as a person. And could you talk about your experience with he was the vice the most, president? He was really I, – I can't think of someone more courteous, more decent, better to have worked for um, – and there's lots of things, you know, I disagree with Vice President Cheney on um, over the years. But 
everything he's ever done, said, believed is from a point of view that it's the right thing to do for the country. It's the right thing to do for his kids and his grandkids. And it's really hard to find anybody who's ever worked for Dick Cheney. And I think this is also true of Hillary Clinton, by the way, who actually knows the person over a 40-year public life who has a bad word to say about them. And and he's one of those he's one of those people. And, um, you know, I, I enjoyed him uh, as a as a person, as a boss, very, very much. When did you leave the White House to go work for Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger? Left the day that Justice Alito was confirmed, said goodbye to the president and vice president. Um, and you had a pretty big role in Justice Alito being confirmed. I, I led the Alito confirmation. I led the. Uh, Chief Justice's confirmation, John Roberts, and then I had uh, spent a bit of time in Iraq between between the two. And then when Alito was done, I, I wound up in, in Santa Monica, California, uh, in Arnold Schwarzenegger's offices. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was a real change of scenery, to say the least. Um, Arnold has, uh, as his personal office, is the greatest man cave ever designed. It's um, He's got an annex off the office, which is a recreation of the Austrian farmhouse that he grew up in. And you see the Terminator exoskeleton. There's pool table in the middle with the alligator from True Lies underneath and the Harrier jet above. There's the Mr. Universe and Olympia trophies, Andy Warhols. It's just a, it's magnificent. And, you know, sitting there larger than life, smoking a cigar was, was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, um, when I took over that campaign, he had put forward these four ballot measures, and they had all gone down to defeat. And he was standing at a 29 percent approval level and began an hour-long polling presentation and you know, said that there's not a lot of good news here, Governor. Um, you know, we're losing to every conceivable Democrat. Uh, the election's in 11 months. Uh, but there's two good pieces of news. People still like you personally. And they still want to see you be successful. So we think that if you essentially go out there and you say that, you know, look, my my intentions were uh, to to make the state better. My methods weren't great. I talked too much. I didn't listen enough. I was too divisive. I let people down. But I'm going to do better. And to anyone I let down, I'm sorry. Um, to anybody that voted for me that I've disappointed, uh, trust me, I'm going to do better. I said, but then you got to act completely different. So you got to be in a suit, not these governor action jackets. We got to move to the middle, try to do some climate change legislation. We have to do a big infrastructure package. We got to get some stuff done. So you got to be a big, magnanimous, gracious leader. Can't call the Democrats girly men anymore. Right? One of them attacks you. You got to turn the other cheek. And so I go through this whole thing. I'm sitting there and you know finish. And Schwarzenegger smoking a cigar doesn't say a word for a minute. And then he goes. He goes, yeah, absolutely. I will play this role perfectly. And, and he did, won by 17 points. But it was the best, it was the most fun job I've ever had. He's a, he's a tremendous guy. So you played a huge role in the 2008 campaign of John McCain. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that a little bit. You know, I was a volunteer all the way through. I was never paid during that during that campaign. Kind of like Paul Manafort. <laughs> and kind of like Paul Manafort without the Russian oligarch <laughs> debt. Um, I was walking my dog in Northern California, and um, that's how the movie Game Change begins, you know, very accurately. You know, the phone rang, and 
you know, I talked to McCain most days at that point, you know, several times a day. And he always began the conversation, his gruff and gravelly voice. He'd say, hey, boy. And uh, I got a call. The campaign had collapsed. He was bankrupt. It was in last place. Um, and he said, boy, he said, will you help me? Will you help me? He said, everybody quit. He goes, they're all gone. He goes, they think I'm getting out of the race. And, you know, I'm not going to. I, you know, I, I remember all this because I had so many friends who it was like an exodus and I had a and, couple friends who stayed. And I told him, yes, I'll help you. I don't want a job on the campaign. Let, let me figure out and have a weekend to think about, you know, what, what to tell you about what you should do because you're in last place now and basically dead in the water. And grab my dog and backpack and was living in Northern California camped out at Lake Tahoe and did some hiking and, you know, uh, and even a broke clock is right twice a day. And, you know, I called the race correctly. I didn't think that Rudy Giuliani could win in New Hampshire. I didn't think that Mitt Romney could win in Iowa. And I thought that he would have a lane up the middle, you know, for a fast rise and comeback if we, if we played it right. And it, and it worked out. And so McCain goes on, he comes back and he becomes the Republican nominee. And then, in early July, we're down, you know, a dozen points, 13 points, whatever the number was. It was we were way down. Obama was speaking in uh, in Germany to hundreds of thousands of screaming Germans. And, you know, this moribund McCain campaign was hanging out at Schmidt Sausage House. Um, it was the name in, in Ohio. And there were six people inside. And, you know, I got put in charge of everything in that campaign except for two things. Uh, which were the VP search process in vetting and the completion of the Republican convention. Well, and that's really what I wanted to talk to you about because, you know, it is uh, still looking back. You kind of can't believe that Sarah Palin was the Republican vice presidential nominee for... Yeah, you're not the only one. <laughs> exactly. I remember being in at the time... When she gave her speech at the RNC convention, I was at the NATO ISAF headquarters in Kabul, Afghanistan, working for the commanding general over there in his strategic advisory group. I was detailed from the National Security Council where I was working for President Bush on Afghanistan. And I remember I, you know, she walks out at the convention and gives this amazing, amazing speech. And I would be remiss if I didn't also point out that the speech was written by two of my great mentors, John McConnell and Matt Scully. But it really was a fantastic opening launch. But then, uh, you know, we all know the dark turn it took and how unprepared she was. And you have been blamed as the man who gave us Sarah Palin, even though I would argue John McCain gave us Sarah Palin because he did choose her. What was your role with the selection of Sarah Palin? I mean, look, the campaign advisors don't pick the vice presidential candidate. But if it wasn't for me, I don't think she would have ever been seriously considered. You know, and I, and I have regret about that every day that I wake up. You know, but what happened here was that, you know, my idea and, and McCain supported it was that he was going to pick Joe Lieberman. And so there's two types of elections. There's change elections. There's more of the same. You go back to 1984, we're talking about Ronald Reagan. He wins 49 states. Keep going, Gipper, right? 2008 elections could be a change election. 
I have the deepest respect and admiration for for President Bush and and for the opportunities that were afforded me. It was always difficult and uncomfortable in that campaign because the incumbent president of our party had an approval level in the 30s. And there had been three times in the last 108 years where the incumbent party had been rewarded with a third term. Happened when Herbert Hoover was elected, happened when FDR got a third term, and it happened when George Bush succeeded President Reagan. So we were running uphill. And what I thought the path for McCain to do was basically to go out and to say that I put the uniform of the country on when I was 17 years old. And I have spent every hour of my adult life in service to America, except for the period of time when I was a candidate for Congress after I retired from the Navy. And I have been an imperfect servant of the country. But if the American people so honor me, I have one last mission. And I've asked to join me in that mission as my wingman, my partner, a great patriot, a great member of the Democratic Party, Joe Lieberman. And we're going to work together. We're going to take a time out for this poisonous, toxic partisanship, and we're going to fix this country's four biggest problems, which are A, B, C, and D. And I'm going to do it in one term. I will serve only for four years, will not stand for reelection. We will put down the politics. And then it will be someone else's turn to lead this great country as this old man retires to his ranch in Arizona and catches up on his reading. And maybe... That man will one day be Barack Obama, who is a good man, but isn't ready yet to be president. And I thought that could give us a fighting chance. It was entirely dependent on secrecy because needed to go into the convention and basically say, putting a pro-choice Democrat on in a situation where it gave us a shot to win would upset the conservatives, the activists, but If they didn't have time to organize the rebellion against it, I could jam it through. No one would have been happy. There would have been real anger. But between McCain and Obama, I think they would have blinked if we kept it secret. What happened, though, is Lindsey Graham went out, not maliciously, but he let the secret spill. It leaked when he was talking to a group of activists in South Carolina and within a very short period of time, had heard from Limbaugh, from Hannity, you know, directly from President Bush, uh, from Karl Rove, so you just can't do it. And by the way, when that happened, you know, it was communicated back clearly in the rules, which I won't get into of the Republican convention, but we could have had a VP imposed on us at that time. It was also clear, and no Tom Ridge, nobody is pro-choice. And so we were left with Romney and Pawlenty. I have a a lot of respect for, for Governor Romney, and I think he would have been a great pick. But we were in the middle of a mortgage crisis, and everyone forgets this. McCain had flubbed a question, which was a bit unfair because the houses in question were all owned by Cindy, who's the chief executive officer of one of the largest Anheuser distributorships in, in the country, very successful businesswoman. And, and he was asked, how many houses do you own? He had no idea. Uh, The answer was seven. But the number that really mattered was how many houses did McCain and Romney own together in the middle of a mortgage crisis? And that number was 15. And nobody thought that was a good idea. Tim Pawlenty was as nice a guy as you ever meet in politics. But I thought from a from a selling perspective, it was like diet Breyer's vanilla ice cream. 
And, and what we needed to have happen was to come out ahead out of the convention. We had four strategic goals, and they were all uh, contradictory. We had to excite the middle of the electorate. We had to close a massive gender gap. We had to show that it wouldn't be Bush's third term. And we had to excite the conservative base of the of the party. And standing for a few days on the um, front lawn of a beach house in New Jersey with my where my family was staying, I was on the phone with Rick Davis back at the headquarters. I said, we're not going to win with any of these people. We don't have an acceptable choice politically. I said, I don't know anything about her other than she's the most popular governor in America. Uh, got an approval rating of 80 percent. No, she's taken on Exxon. She's taken on these corrupt Alaska politicians and that, that McCain hates. But we ought to take a look at her. But Rick, she's got to be completely and fully vetted. And of course, the vetting process was a profound failure. And a couple of days after that speech, um, you know, is when I have my first indication that she can't pick out Iraq on a map or Afghanistan on a map, map or knew who attacked us on 9-11 if her life depended on it. And so we had a you know, problem of ignorance, of intellectual deficiency, character deficiency. And, and by the time we get to this end, you know, just complete and total whack jobbery on the on the campaign. Where were you the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed, September 15th? It was in New York City. And incredibly, we were at a meeting of McCain's shadow economic cabinet council, and all the big names were there. Mitt Romney, Meg Whitman, John Thane, Henry Kravis, Schwartzman, big Wall Street titans. And this is a photo op deal, and you've been on campaigns. Typically, we'd be back responding to emails, talking to someone, don't necessarily have to be in the room watching you know, which a pro forma for the cameras for the for the media event. That event, after we kicked the cameras out, um, trying to understand what was going on. And, you know, at that point, I had worked in a White House. I had run two Supreme Court confirmations. I had run and won a California governor's race. I had been detailed to Iraq out of the out of the White House. And I read voraciously and constantly but I had no idea what a credit default swap was and what was going on in the economy. No one in that room was able to give a coherent answer about what was happening. And so, you know, we leave that day. Um, stock market's down a thousand points. McCain had said uh, the fundamentals of the economy are strong. And, you know, of course, the Obama campaign jumped all over that. It wasn't a great thing to, you know, to have said, obviously. And McCain and I are in the in the car, um, in the in the SUV in the suburban, um, you know, just us in the car, uh, you know, Secret Service, and got Warren Buffett on the phone. And um, Warren Buffett, of course, Democrat, was supporting President Obama, but McCain and Buffett had a good relationship, and Warren Buffett was close to Arnold Schwarzenegger, and um, he was listening to him on the phone. He described it this way: he he said he said John. He said, this is like knowing about Pearl Harbor on December 1st. In a matter of days before the equities markets and the credit markets freeze and, and the global economy could collapse. And I asked, I said, I, I said, what does that mean? And he said, that means 
you won't be able to get $20 out of an ATM machine. I got off that phone as soon as I got out of that car. I remember I picked up the phone and I called my wife. And I said, please don't argue with me. I, I said, go to the bank now and get as much cash out of the bank as you can conceivably get. Get as much cash as you can get out tomorrow. Get cash. It was terrifying. And you know, we obviously didn't have a have a handle on it from a policy perspective. And I'm not sure that anybody did. But for a couple of you know really brilliant people, and you talk about having someone who's competent in in government, you know, at the right place, you know, Hank Paulson, you know, you you can't you can't laud that guy enough for the for the work that 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 occurred there, and though it may have ushered in this era of populism um, and nationalism. It did prevent the economic collapse that Warren Buffett warned about. With that backdrop of a looming economic collapse that we know didn't happen, but it was an incredibly rough backdrop for a campaign, when did it just seem like the election was over? That was it. The right track number dropped to 6%. You just knew it was fatal. And you don't want to be defeatist, but you know at the same time, you'd be practical it's if someone gets shot in the head, they're you know typically not gonna not gonna make it. And you know we had a run of bad luck. You know politics isn't fair. When you, I remember the Republican convention in Minneapolis, and people forget this is that first day of that convention, Monday, President Bush and Dick Cheney were supposed to speak. It was the fifth anniversary of Katrina, which was unfortunate timing, but forecast to hit New Orleans on that day was a Category Five hurricane. And we, we, we canceled the first day of the, you know, of the convention, somewhat opportunistically because, you know, though, again, with, you know, respect and having had the opportunities to, to work for both men politically, you know, it was not going to be a, a speech that persuaded people, you know, to give John McCain, you know, four years after the eight that we just had. People were in market for a change. And so we were running uphill and into the wind. And then the Sarah Palin problem really began to emerge in its full... In its full glory, its full bloom. No, it was incredible because you have conversations like this with her. You know, it would would be that she would insist, she'd say, I want to take my vice presidential campaign plane wherever I want to. The vice presidential campaign's going to Michigan. And I would respond, I'd say, well, Governor, first off, there's no such thing as a vice presidential campaign presidential campaign, your vice president. There is some truth that you can order that plane to go wherever you want it to go, but you should definitely have a plan to get back from wherever it lands because it's my gas card, right? And it was, you know, the relationship was like that. And you're just the most profoundly dishonest person I've ever seen in public life until Trump came along. Uh, I mean, you couldn't get a straight answer out of her about about anything, um, erratic undisciplined, un, unprepared. And, and we've seen that play out over the, over the last 10 years. I mean, it's not as if, right, she got rid of the campaign advisors and then they soared like an eagle. Um, you know, we saw her with the campaign advisors and we've seen her for 10 years without them. And it's the same unprepared person, uh, you know, a, a grifter and a divider. When's the last time you've spoken to her? Election night when I told her she wasn't speaking. So Sarah Palin left... The process, 
Her platform elevated. She decided not to finish out her elected term as governor of Alaska. Would you say that Sarah Palin gave us Trump? No. People say that as a straight line connection. Sarah Palin represents a strain in American politics that's connected to George Wallace, that's connected to Father Coughlin, that's connected back to the Know Nothing movement in the 1840s. There have always been Sarah Palins in, in American life. What Sarah Palin did represent, you, you go back to her resignation. And I remember watching it on TV, and, and, and in fairness, I, I, I watched it with a lot of sympathy. I, I never wished her ill. The person I saw was very different than the one I had first met. She looked emaciated. Uh, she looked like she was in real psychological distress. I read her book and she said you didn't let her run enough during the campaign. <laughs> the, um, the speech was completely incoherent. And, and I said, well, this, this is it. This is it. It's over. She's done. I remember watching the Fox panel and say, well, She's going to be a credible candidate in 2012. Oh, it was great. And so what she represents is a moment in time, not of connection to Trump, but of the suspension of disbelief within the Republican Party, where what was plainly in front of your eyes could not be called by its name for fear of this base, which at the moment... Its size, its power, I think, was still illusory. And so the inability to say, hey, she's clearly manifestly unprepared for national office, opened the door to candidates like Sharon Engel and Christine O'Donnell and all this other menagerie of whack jobs that are completely unfit for any government position or office. And it metastasizes to Trump. What I would say about Trump is Trump's first legitimacy in politics came because Mitt Romney decided to meet with him multiple times in the 2012 campaign and bestow legitimacy on him. He should have been repudiated. And I tried to repudiate him for the birther nonsense um, in 2000 and, you know, the 2012 election. But the decay the intellectual rot, the moral rot within the conservative movement in the Republican Party has been developing for a long time. She's a chapter in it, but I but I think it's grotesquely simplistic to draw a straight line from A to B causally. They are symptoms of a sickness uh, in American politics. And the embrace of the the meanness, the cruelty, the just general stupidity of it all um, – you know, uh, is is what it is. Palin was a fool. Trump is profoundly dangerous. And that is the big difference between the two. Steve, when did you start to seriously think you could no longer call yourself in good conscience a member of the Republican Party? Well, over the course of the first year of the Trump presidency, and I, I've always been critical of him, but I'll say a word about these two parties if I could, which is that you want to identify someone as a stupid person. Find somebody who believes that all virtue is in one political party, all goodness is in one, and no good ideas exist in the other. Marginally, I identified as a Republican going back to uh, the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was a, was a, was a president. 
but have never believed that the Republican Party was right on 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 every issue. Generally, I believe that both parties are two of the most important institutions in world history for the advancement of human freedom and dignity. Uh, the essential leader of the 19th century who saved the Union, Abraham Lincoln, came from the Republican Party. Uh, the greatest leader of the of the 20th century was Franklin Roosevelt, uh, who led the coalition that saved the world from from darkness. Uh, but but over the Trump era, I've come to believe that the single greatest institutional threat to liberty to freedom is the Republican Party, corrupted by Donald Trump in this Trump era, where it's transitioned from the party of Lincoln and Ulysses Grant and Teddy Roosevelt and Eisenhower and Reagan to a cult of personality that's on the wrong side of defending American democracy, liberty, on the wrong side of questions of meanness and cruelty and decency. It's become fundamentally corrupt. It's become rancid, rotten from the from the head down. I believed in a party that espoused the principles of freedom, of individual liberty, of personal responsibility, that stood for a robust defense and internationalism, that was for free trade, that was for fiscal probity, that could be trusted to watch the taxpayer dollar. I believed in the limited government party of Ronald Reagan, not the racist party of Donald Trump. I knew from the first time I heard Donald Trump's opening remarks, you know, the Mexicans are rapists going down the escalator, that this was a politician, a man, a person, a human being I could never support in any way, shape or form just because I didn't believe he had the fundamental character to be president. When did you become disillusioned by Donald Trump? Well, as soon as he came down the escalator, I never supported Donald Trump for president. Now, we might have been sitting on TV together that day or in close proximity, but you know, a lot of people on TV said when he came down the escalator, this guy's a clown and a joke. And I said immediately, said, uh, you don't think that this guy's going to have a major impact that, that, that he can't win. I, I think you're fooling yourself. And the reason I believe that is because he was saying the things that millions of people are screaming at their TV sets every night watching watching Fox News. I knew he would be a potent figure, a divisive figure, a bad figure. And ultimately, he becomes the nominee of the party. You know, because someone has an injury or a tumor or a cancer in them, and he was a cancer on conservatism, a cancer on the party, but he had not yet killed the party, right? The party still existed. And as I said before, I think these two political parties are profoundly important institutions. It's not until we see the lock, stock and barrel surrender of the Republican Party's elected officials to Trumpism that the Republican Party dies and fully becomes the party of Trump, the party of internationalism, of free trade, the party that espoused and helped create and lead the U.S.-led liberal global order. That is all over in the era of Trump. It was not over the day that Trump was inaugurated. The spread of the Trumpist cancer into the conservative and into the Republican body is what killed it. And ultimately, for me, the final nail in the coffin, the straw that broke the camel's back was watching people defend the snatching of babies who are breastfeeding 
from their mother's breast to lock them in internment camps. Horrified by it, disgusted by it, it said, I will be part of this no more. What comes after all this? How does conservatism recover? How does the GOP recover? If it does, is it time for a third party? I think this country would be well served by a third choice. We have 47 choices of ketchup and hundreds of radio stations and television stations, but but we don't have a third choice. And and if what happens to the Democratic Party that 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 I think is going to happen, which is a real race to the left, and we get a choice between dishonest Trumpism and a dishonest progressivism that says people are going to be guaranteed a job for life by the federal government, cradle to grave entitlements, when we have $21 trillion in debt, the beggaring of the country, a socialist agenda, uh, by any other words, there, there's, there's, in a, there's a mass of people in the middle uh, that are just completely unrepresented by the, by the political parties today. But in order for a decent right of center movement to awaken in this country again, the party of Trump has to be burned to the ground. It's got to go. It has to be repudiated. It has to be. It has to be defeated. Um, and this loony cast of characters around him needs to be expurgated from American life. And unless and until that happens, what we're going to increasingly see is the repudiation of this. But it will be repudiated by a Democratic Party moving far to the left. It'll be repudiated. And the Democrats will be given the check that is necessary to preserve our democratic institutions. But the policy agenda uh, that they'll enact, I couldn't disagree more with, A. And B, I think it isolates tens and tens of millions of people who just want pragmatic, common sense politics in the center. We'll be right back. Steve, you've run your share of political campaigns, and it's hard to find top talent. How do you recruit when you want to set up a top-notch operation? Well, you're right. Whether it's at the local, state, federal, national level, one of the toughest parts of setting up a campaign is finding the right people and getting them into the right jobs. And when I ran my first campaign, and you have to remember, this was before Al Gore invented the internet, applications came in by mail, and it could take weeks before you even met with candidates Uh, for key positions. And while things move faster today, process is still difficult. You either get too few resumes or too many, and even then, often not for the right people you're looking for. But ZipRecruiter makes it easy. ZipRecruiter.com slash words. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And with results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash words. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash words, W-O-R-D-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash words, the smartest way to hire ZipRecruiter. And one final word. This past weekend marked the first anniversary of one of the darker 
episodes of American history, the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, that claimed the life of peaceful protester Heather Heyer. Last August, I watched the violence unfold in Donald Trump's response from Memphis, Tennessee, where I had been staying with my mom as she recovered from surgery. A few years ago, I was convinced that maybe with the new generation, race relations were getting a little bit better. Certainly not fast enough, but I thought that there was perhaps a mild improvement and some steps in the right direction. Donald Trump shattered that hope of progress, his false equivalency saying that among white supremacists and peaceful protesters that there certainly were very fine people on both sides, was really a gut punch and just an embarrassment. Growing up in a small town in Mississippi during the 80s, the KKK was just reviled, at least openly. I always heard my mom talk about anyone who was remotely associated with the KKK was just a terrible, awful person. And that was what I heard from my friends' parents, too. It was basically how everyone talked about it. But with Trump's words, he managed to elevate what had been on the verge of extinction. And, of course, Donald Trump never really walked back his comments. He only tried to justify his patently false and hateful words because he actually is racist. It's because Donald Trump actually believes that there are, quote, very fine people on both sides when there are not. In the year following Charlottesville, Trump has called NFL players who are, of course, mostly black, sons of bitches for exercising their constitutional right to protest in unjust society. But the white supremacists of Charlottesville are, quote, very fine people. Let that sink in for a minute. In a phone call to the widow of a black U.S. Green Beret killed in Niger, Trump struggled to recall Sergeant LaDavid Johnson's name. And then he called Maisha Johnson a liar when he was exposed for lying. This is the president of the United States calling a widow a liar. According to Donald Trump, any person of color who disagrees with him, from CNN anchor Don Lemon to NBA star LeBron James and many, many others, is dumb or a low IQ individual. The list goes on, but I'll spare you. This is not just about Trump himself. It's about his enablers, the very fine people who help get Trump to where he is today. Very fine people can do a lot of bad things in American history. They tolerate Jim Crow laws. They tolerate lynchings. They even tolerated the barbarity of slavery. I think about those White House staffers who had reportedly heard Trump air such racist sentiments in private, but were just so shocked and upset when he actually said what he believed in public. And at this very moment, those repugnant beliefs are the policy of our government as executed under Donald Trump. Let me read from a letter. Quote, They were being separated forever from the scenes of their childhood, their friends, their fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, and many of them from their wives and children. End quote. That's Abraham Lincoln in 1841, writing of a slave auction. While very different in magnitude, the same words can describe what Donald Trump's government is doing today on our southern border. Lincoln understood, perhaps better than any president in our history, America's founding idea. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words written by a 32-year-old Thomas Jefferson of Charlottesville, Virginia, a man who didn't exactly live up to the belief in equality himself, serve as America's mission statement. Like all mission statements, they represent an ideal, not what we were, but what we aspire to be. 
Since then, the story of America has always been the story of those who want to move us closer to that founding ideal and those who don't. For a tax cut, for a Supreme Court justice, Republicans have enabled the racism of Donald Trump and in doing so reject our founding ideals and put themselves firmly on the wrong side of history. Trump supporters say they like that he tells it like it is. It's time, though, for all of his supporters to reckon with the fact that much of what Donald Trump says is categorically racist. Birtherism and a long history of racism should have disqualified Donald Trump from the Republican debate stage. It should have disqualified him from the Republican nomination. And it should have disqualified him from the presidency long before he ever descended that escalator in Trump Tower. A year after Charlottesville, we should all take time to not only remember Heather Heyer, but the principles, the words upon which this country was founded. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.